Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today I have as my guest, Katrina Van Gass. She is a former Fulbright Scholar, as I am. Uh, she's also been Vice President of Silicon Valley Bank. And now she is not only a great motivated speaker and leader, but she is the CEO and co-founder of AidKit, which we're going to talk about today. So with no further ado, welcome to The Caring Economy, Katrina. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Toby. It's really great to be here. So Katrina, we always start by asking our guests to tell us a little bit about their life journey, how they got where they got, maybe some uh, mentors, the role their parents played, and then even maybe some pivots you made along the way. So let's see. So I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, and I think my career journey really started um, back in college. I went to Santa Clara University as part of the business school there and honestly felt like a disconnect of where was the human side of business. And so it led me to discover the Center of Science, Technology, and Society, um, which was a group there, and they were really focused on social entrepreneurship. So that was like my first kind of deep dive in social entrepreneurship. And I was really gravitated towards the concept of using business to solve the world's most pressing problems. And so through that experience, I did a, a fellowship in Uganda, and I got to work with different social enterprises there. And Kiva was one of them. And they mm -hmm. are an international organization that gives microfinance loans um, to people across the world. And so that was my first really on the ground impactful experience was seeing the power of giving someone cash. And then also just this concept of a fundamental distribution problem that I saw. We have all these resources, yet there's groups of people, families, whole societies where they're, they're lacking resources. And how, what, how do we create bridges of resources to people who need them. And that was kind of a thread that I, in curiosity that I've held on to. So I did that. And then fast forward to graduating from Santa Clara, I was going through the confusing time for many people of what do you do with what's your first job? And is your first job, like the determination of your whole life moving forward. I found myself working with a entrepreneur that I actually met through that center. And so it was a small social enterprise called Artisan Connect. And I, I wanted to get that on the ground experience again of working with a social enterprise, but then felt that I needed to kind of transition to a more established organization to build out a skill set. And that's what led me to Silicon Valley Bank, which was a really interesting um, job of just getting to work with many types of businesses, many type of passionate entrepreneurs and understanding the complexities of different business models. I hit a point there after about four years where I felt like I got the skills that I was looking to gain and it never was the end goal for me to stay there. And so I felt like now I have a more useful skill set to bring back to the um, social impact world. And that's what led me to do the Fulbright Scholarship in Fiji in the South Pacific. Mm -hmm. And I kind of took a different approach to the Fulbright. Mine was less of a research project and more of a starting a program there. My hope was that it would continue after I left. Mm -hmm. And so I went there and worked with women entrepreneurs and a microfinance bank, built out an accelerator program there called Fiji Bloom that's still going on today. I came back to Colorado, which is where I live now. After that experience, I again was in a confusing place of 
what do I do after this like crazy Fiji experience? How am I going to find anything that is interesting to me? <laughs> and so I found myself you know, looking of, of what would be interesting and trying to connect with people that I had worked with in the past and really respected in the past. And that's how I reconnected with Mark, who is one of my other co-founders. The conversation led to direct cash assistance, and it was something I was thinking about and him as well. And then we decided, like, let's informally explore the concept of direct cash assistance. And can this be an intervention for certain populations or for certain circumstances? And then two weeks later, COVID hit. That's when we really saw a need within the undocumented community in Colorado and thought this is an opportunity for us to pilot direct cash assistance. And then that led to the establishment of Left Behind Workers Fund, which is a program now that's delivered over $38 million, over 25,000 undocumented workers in Colorado. That was the origination of Aid Kit. And so through Left Behind Workers Fund, we built out a tech platform to support Left Behind Workers Fund. And then we realized that there was many other programs, many other populations across the country that could benefit from this tool. And that's what led us to spin out AidKit as a, a separate company. Now we are a part of you know, over 20 different guaranteed income programs and direct cash um, pilots across the country. I've got so many follow-up questions. Going back to child real quickly, I just want to understand you had this desire, this burning passion somehow within you. Was it something your parents stoked, your community? How did you kind of get this calling to kind of make the world a better place? I've always been a observer, um, just growing up as an only child and being just in my kind of family history. I've I've always been um, really looking outward at what are other people's experiences and really finding compassion and relatability with that. Mm -hmm. And so I think it kind of started, um, yeah, early on for me and the work that I'm doing now, it, I think to be successful, it requires a heart centered approach and really trying to understand many different perspectives of Mm -hmm. how you create something that's going to be successful. Tell us a little bit about Silicon Valley Bank, because it's not your typical JP Morgan Chase, right? There's a startup bank and they have, you know, different divisions. I was on the venture team. So I was working with startup companies that were raising venture capital. I wasn't specifically in the life science uh, medical department. So companies coming up with different um, biomedical products or like cures the cancer. So really just fascinating leaders of those companies. And they were in this, in the stage of, of growing their business and traditionally can't qualify for many um, loans or outside investment support. And so we would take risk and kind of evaluate the business model and potential future success and lend money alongside other VCs. There is just value of being a part of a established company where they do have, you know, the resources for helping someone grow and kind of supporting that process and really learning the the rigor behind the private sector. And then of course, life throws curveball. So for example, you're talking about COVID, you're about to launch something, COVID hits, and you realize this is our real life experiment. Did that realization come to you like a light bulb going off over your head or was it a deductive process? We started thinking about cash assistance and we're, you know, more 
casually looking at what populations could benefit from this. Like we were looking at people who are recently incarcerated, you know, that receive $100 after they get out of prison. And that's obviously not really enough to even have more than a few days of living, you know, in a hotel. We were exploring certain population sets. And then it was that dramatic when COVID hit of people in the community immediately lost their jobs, lost their businesses. The undocumented community wasn't receiving the stimulus check and they didn't qualify for unemployment insurance. So there was a clear and pressing and urgent need. And it wasn't like we could ponder and, you know, sit around debating what populations. It was like, we need to set this up. So we put together a pilot and raised $200,000 in about three weeks, started getting cash assistance out. It's always interesting to me to see the sort of the silver linings that come with these things. It's not always one-sided, right? What about the politicization that goes on in the world now, uh, uh, particularly at that time, Colorado, you know, you have your blue and your red competitions. Did politics present a particular challenge to you as you were trying to work with undocumented workers or did you kind of stay above the fray? One of our missions of Left Behind Workers Fund was to get public sector support for this community. We had to do that in a kind of strategic way. Once we were able to sit the get the city of Denver to use public funding to support Left Behind Workers Fund, they were the first public entity to contribute. That allowed us to then take that and go back to the state, you know, and re-ask the governor for support. Eventually the state did contribute, you know, first it was 5 million and it was only for a rental assistance program because they were uncomfortable with funds directly going to, to people. So if it went to a landlord, that kind of got a around potential risk. And so this is a clear need. Rental systems is huge. And so we'll do it. And so we did it. And then after that, we were able to eventually continue working with them, created a partnership. The need was apparent. And now they've they've contributed over $20 million to Left Behind Workers Fund. So they're the big biggest funder. Our, our third goal was to change the law in Colorado and to actually get unemployment insurance equity for this group. The state of Colorado enacted. We got a bill that was implemented this last legislative session, and they will be having the first unemployment insurance program, permanent benefit for undocumented workers, and aid kit will be supporting the implementation of that. So it's a really full circle program and kind of cool to see a cash assistance program lead to permanent policy change. So the, the bill is in process and it's it's intended to pass both houses. It's it has passed. First yes. of its kind in the nation, I would think, no? Yeah, it will it will be the first of its kind. Congratulations. That's really cool. Let's then let's move then to aid kit. So tell tell our listeners uh, about it. What is it? How does it work? How do they find it if they think they can support it or partake in it? The mission of Aid Kit is to help organizations and governments deliver cash assistance or guaranteed income efficiently, effectively, and with dignity. And what we are is we're a, a united technology platform or tool that supports every stage of the process of running one of these direct cash assistance or guaranteed income programs. And so we've really purpose-built our tool for this, for this use case. And what that means kind of in practicality is we support outreach, we host the application on AidKit, we review and verify any documents that are uploaded, we have a applicant support function, 
and we distribute payments to banked and unbanked. Doing this with dignity is a really, really critical piece of how we have designed AidKit and you know why we are the preferred partner for many of these programs mm -hmm. is because we've create, created a tool that's extremely accessible to hard to reach populations. So we can offer the application in as many languages as we need to have text-to-speech capabilities. So if someone you know can't has trouble with literacy, everything is read out loud, and we have different payment options. And so the accessibility piece has been mm -hmm. something that I'm really proud of. It sounds to me like you're both B two B and B two C. Is that right? You're you know how to interact with the consumers, the unbanked and all that, but then you also are being the vendor or partner of choice for these businesses, right? Yeah, that, that's right. And and so usually we will partner with a government agency, could be a city that's you know running a guaranteed income pilot, or it could be a nonprofit that is really focused on the unhoused that wants to um, you know set up their own direct cash assistance or guaranteed income program for that population. And we work with them to to set up the program and administer the program and all of our relationships look a little bit different based on like what the partner is wanting to do and bringing to the table. Um, but we do have our own applicant support team that can provide direct applicant support. If, if people, applicants do have questions while they're filling out the application or payment issues come up. Um, so in some of our programs, we're, we're providing that applicant support. And then in other programs, we're really empowering these community-based organizations that have direct relationships with the community to use our tool to um, run the program. For our general listeners, is there an example you can give us of maybe from start to finish of what AidKit has done with? We've run a lot of programs in Chicago recently, the um, city of Chicago and Cook County, they've, they've really dedicated a lot of resources towards and funding towards setting up these guaranteed income pilots and uh, working with their communities. So we have um, partnered with Give Directly on those programs. And um, for those who don't know, Give Directly, they're a, a large international nonprofit that also is delivers direct cash assistance. And so we have kind of a special relationship with them where they are taking more of the program administrative role and they're using our tech platform to implement um, the application, payments. Um, they use our tool to do the review, but they're providing all of the human power behind it. Mm -hmm. And so um, in that example, we set up, um, I think Cook County, that's the largest guaranteed income program in the, in the country right now and one that was recently launched. Um, so we worked with them and have, you know, set up the application and over 250,000 people applied. Um, and there was a, a research team that we're also working with. And so a lottery was, was drawn and a few thousand people were selected to enroll and actually receive direct cash. And so um, all of that took place on AidKit and first payments will be going out this month. How do you see traditional banks or how do they see you? Because it seems to me you're filling a need where there's just no facility for people who are unbanked or who just don't have the access. I mean, these programs are pretty complex. So it's more than just payments. I think that's that's really the need we are filling is to run a direct cash assistance program. Most other groups out there, they're trying to glue together many different systems. So they're trying to glue together a, a bank to do you know, direct deposits. And then they realize maybe they need a payment option for people who are unbanked. All of these separate tools that are needed 
which creates a lot of inefficiency, a lot of redundancy, digital manual labor in like spreadsheets and trying to manage all of that. And then the rigor of verification can't be as strong when you have so many things just split across different systems. I don't think any single bank can can run a direct cash, cash assistance program on its own. I think they it's used as a part of these programs trying to piece together uh, many different systems, but we've just found that it's very complex. And that's where the value of aid kit is everything is done in one unified system. So you get a lot of efficiency. Ladies and gentlemen, again, today on The Caring Economy, we have Katrina Van Gas with us. She is the co-founder and CEO of aid kit, which we're talking about today. Really fascinating to see how the entrepreneurial spirit is being applied to assisting people who need it. Do you think of yourself as a serial entrepreneur? How do you define yourself? I think of myself as someone who's very honored to be doing this type of work and that I get to work with the team I get to work with and be a part of something that is much bigger than myself and, you know, even much bigger than aid kit. And so I, I, yeah, I feel like I'm a, a piece that's helping steer the ship forward that could really make a big difference for a lot of people and drive a lot of impact. Briefly, you mentioned international and also you had your Fulbright experience. How does the international landscape fit in you you've partnered with that one organization said chicago do you aspire to be international one day we've been really focused on the u.s i and so we are right now just domestic i think it's i think we have a lot of opportunity just as a company and as we explore this market more that i think international you know could be in our future i think it's a possibility you're commercial, but I would imagine because of the social impact aspect of it, you could also be working with philanthropists and private offices. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, no, definitely. We have a mix of, um, you know, private funding and government funding. So it's, we, we can do both. I think we're, we're interested in helping bring more momentum to direct cash assistance movement and be where we can innovate to figure out how to get cash assistance to populations that are still hard to reach. Mm -hmm. um, that's what we're kind of focused on and wherever we can be the, have the most scale with, with our tool and drive the most impact. COVID helped spur the movement of people being more open to cash assistance and seeing the need and that as more evidence comes out that is supporting the the benefits of direct cash assistance, I think it's shifting people's um, perceptions and creating more openness for experimentation and, and recognizing that this is a really valuable intervention. What's the best way to find you or, or aid kit if someone wants to join in or support? Our website is, is very comprehensive. And um, for those who might be building their own direct cash assistance program or a part of, you know, a team that's looking at that as an intervention. We, you can book a demo with us to really see our tool in action. I think that's always useful. It's easy to talk about software, but better to actually see how it works. Um, so I think that's the best way. A different question. I'm wondering where are you scaling the most uh, deliberately or by chance that you're seeing, like you mentioned Cook County and in, in, in Illinois, are there certain parts of the country or certain communities that are just really burgeoning in ways that you didn't anticipate or that you did go after? I think we're scaling um, the most with just being a part of these larger guaranteed income pilots, um, which is where we're definitely interested in putting our, our efforts because we're able to impact the most people. And then 
Um, even when you think about research, when you can have a program that is working with you know, over a thousand people, you're going to get research that can be more compelling to then make the case for other cash assistance programs and, you know, actually create permanent change and for some of these communities that are facing systemic barriers. So I think we're finding that our combination of having really uh, rigorous fraud protection and having a lot of integrity behind how we build aid kit with the accessibility piece has made us a, a good fit for these government programs that are, you know, interested in taking that on and have the funds to have a, a scaled out program. So I think we're kind of finding a niche there and then still obviously wanting to support other innovative programs that might be at the smaller stage. That suggests to me that you're not transacting in crypto. Is that a fair statement? That is a fair statement. That's correct. <laughs> Well, I mean, that is still evolving too. It's just fascinating. Yeah. So we talk a lot on this show about diversity, equity, inclusion, DE&I. Certainly the communities you're serving are diverse and, and need greater representation. What about your own house, your own team? Are you, are you practicing it as well internally? Do you have a diverse employee population and how do you manifest those kinds of values? You know, looking at our, our team, which I love our team, um, we have a we have a diverse background on our team. So our two members come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, um, rates, ethnicities, talent, education, gender, so forth. And we've been thoughtful about hiring people that will add to our, you know, DEI. I think we're, we're a new startup. So we're, you know, continuing to take steps in that direction and, and be thoughtful in that regard. And I think it's important for not only our team, but as you pointed out with the the populations that we're working with to really be be identifying people that will add to help us better work with hard to reach populations and just the the different type of clients that we have. Good example of that is we one of our first uh, program manager hires um, to this I'm, I'm still doing program program management as a CEO because we have a small team. Um, so our first program manager outside hire, who is running a direct cash assistance program in Washington, D.C. for early child care educators. Oh. She's a Amharic speaker and actually comes from a background of education. And that was uh, really pivotal to the success of that program because a significant portion of the early child care educators in um, D.C. are Ethiopian and speak Amharic. And so our uh, program manager was really able to bring that relatability and skill set um, to the table when collaborating with the community and coming up with design and kind of teaching them about eligibility requirements and providing applicant support and all of that. And so I think that was like a successful example of how that even impacted our kind of end work and and working with the applicant, which is our highest mission of what we're doing. Really fascinating to hear that. So I'm imagining that you're dancing as fast as you can, never time to kind of relax, but still you do, I suspect you're a lifelong learner like I am. So in addition to your network and the projects you're doing, how do you stay atop of current affairs and news? Do you, are there certain resources you go to to, you know, keep an objective view of what's going on in the world? Podcasts are are big for me just because I think I can put them on, you know, when I'm like making breakfast and at night. And I think it's just an easy, easy way for me to digest information. 
yeah, for news, NPR, The Economist, philosophical thinkers out there that dive more deeply into topics and kind of bring that groundedness. I'm a bit, I'm a big Sam Harris fan, not only his making sense podcasts, but his uh, meditation app. And so honestly, that's the most, like, I think grounding piece for me is just the, if I can, which not always up to what I'd like to be, but the, just taking time to, to meditate and having something that's grounding like that to push the noise away. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Every day I try to walk and I do try to do a little meditation. And actually, it's been proven in data and research that a lot of business leaders do do that. They have their daily routine, usually meditation or other things. Words of wisdom? Words of wisdom. Um, so I think following curiosity is is really key. And I think that kind of framing, for me at least, takes the pressure off of you have to know what you're going to be and you like need to have this grand plan. I think it's just about really understanding what you're curious about and just following that thread and like seeing where that takes you. So I'd say that. And I, I think that leads me to my second words of wisdom, which would be around being intentional about what you consume, like almost like what you consume is what you become. And so I think it's important to understand the agency that we do have to decide how we do want to create our environment and where we can make shifts to, um, you know, get, find connections. If you're interested in climate change, like find some connections of people that are doing interesting work there or find a volunteering activity um, or start like listening to more about climate change. And you're slowly going to shift your environment to, to, to be what you want. And that'll manifest a lot of opportunities. Yeah. Just being really intentional about what you consume, like what you're putting into your life, um, where you can recognizing like people, obviously have barriers that they, they face in that, but where you can take agency, I think it's important. Maybe even more importantly as advice would be that the inward journey is, is really important because ultimately like even if you have these amazing mentors, people will help you discover things in your life, but being able to trust yourself and know when something feels exciting, know when something feels wrong, when it's a toxic environment, when you should say no, when you should say yes, um, I think is the the most important guiding principle that you can have. And so um, just finding the space and the quietude and, and knowing that you you have all the answers inside, but other people, it's great to have other people and resources to help um, guide you there. Really great, great advice. Um, when you talk about agency, I'm also reminded that we all have so much we don't necessarily take stock of. You know, we do have agency, we have, we have good fortune, we have platforms, we have more sway than we sometimes think. So I, again, since the George Floyd and Brianna Taylor murders, I've thought about challenging people regularly each day to say, when you sit down for a meeting or you start a new project, just ask ourselves, how can this be more inclusive, this exercise? How can it be more progressive? And if everyone at the table is thinking that way and everyone's opinions matter, then I think it can only become more diverse and more progressive. So uh, I like reminding people they, they do have that kind of sway because sometimes people are lost and thinking, what can I do, little old me? And in fact, there's so much, as you say. Katrina Van Gas, thank you so much for joining us on The Caring Economy. Ladies and gentlemen, be in touch. Check out AidKit if you're interested in supporting or getting involved. She is the co-founder and CEO, and we're wishing a great holiday. And- Thanks so much.
Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at tusnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing The Caring Economy with your friends and colleagues.